Uh, I won't say any more on that because uh, Gil's going to be uh, saying that and, and no doubt going to be questioned on it all too. So, uh, however, um, I've been given what Knut Peterson calls a short bio, and uh, I will try to, uh, to keep it short. Uh, so the biography of Gil McGowan, uh, he's serving his third term uh, as the elected president of the Alberta Federation of Labor, which is uh, Alberta's largest union active... <coughs> sorry, advocacy organization representing more than 140,000 workers from 27 unions. Okay, under McGowan's leadership, the AFL has been successful in moving a number of work-related issues to the center of public debate in Alberta, including workplace health and safety, the use and abuse of temporary foreign workers, and the increasing loss of oil sands jobs as a result of raw bitumen exports. McGowan also played an important role in the campaign to increase the provincial minimum wage, uh, which is still pretty low by the look of things, uh, and to stop the introduction of former Premier Ralph Klein's controversial third-way plan for health care. McGowan serves as a board member for Friends of Medicare, in the University of Alberta's Parkland Institute. He's a former journalist and the author of several award-winning books um, uh, on the Alberta economy, including Lost Down the Pipeline, about the Alberta oil sands, Crumbs from the Table, about wages and quality of life in Alberta, and now more than ever uh, about the value of unions in Alberta. McGowan was raised in rural north-central Alberta. I'm not quite sure where that is, but um, anyway, well, I allowed that, being a Scotsman. Uh, and currently lives in Edmonton with his wife and three young children. Despite his busy schedule, he makes a point of remaining connected to his community by being involved in the local community league and parents' council at his kids' school. So, uh, Gil McGowan, would you please come forward and, uh, and talk to us? Thanks, Ian. Uh, when I say rural uh, north-central Alberta, I'm talking specifically about Westlock. My parents uh, had a farm about 20 miles north of uh, Westlock, which is a town of about 5,000, which you may have heard of. The, the town that was closest to us was actually called Dap. And it had a population of, I think, 12, if you counted the cats. <laughs> and uh, the, re the reason I uh, include that reference in my bio uh, is because when uh, referring to union leaders, uh, people who feel uncomfortable with labor uh, often like to characterize us as uh, somehow being other. You know, if you're a union leader, you can't possibly be an Albertan. Uh, you're probably from someplace like Toronto. Uh, but, the, but the reality is I did, uh, I, I did grow up in Alberta, uh, and, uh, and, and it's, I, I consider it my home. And uh, I don't think that there is any contradiction between uh, being a union activist and a union leader and also being a proud Albertan. So, uh, you know, the, the Canadian prairie, uh, which I'm very familiar with, having grown up on it, uh, has always been a challenging place to live. When our European ancestors started arriving here more than 100 years ago, they found a place that could be scorchingly hot 
and dry in the summer, maybe especially here in places like southern Alberta. And of course, it could also be bitterly cold in the winter. It was a place characterized by hope, on one hand, at the possibility of new beginnings and better futures, but also by isolation and worry that people felt as they huddled together against a sparsely populated and often inhospitable landscape. Back then, before oil, Alberta was not a wealthy place. People eked out a modest living. They raised cattle. They planted crops. They scratched coal from the coal face. They did what they could. But despite the challenges and the dangers, our grandparents and great-grandparents found a way to prosper. And our communities found a way to grow. Today, Alberta couldn't be different from the world of 1910. Back then, early settlers built their first homes from sod, living like badgers in a burrow. Today, we live in climate-controlled homes with jacuzzi tubs and flat-screen TVs. Back then, miners in places like the Crow's Nest Pass earned pennies a day for back-breaking work. Today, our tradesmen and energy workers get paid thousands and thousands of dollars to build multi-billion dollar oil sands projects. In many ways, Alberta in 2010 is a world apart from Alberta in 1910. But there are important parallels to be drawn and important lessons to be learned. Today, thanks to SACPA and the platform that you've given me, I'd like to talk a little bit about those parallels and those lessons and what they mean for us, the current generation of Albertans, as we move into the second decade of the 21st century. In particular, I want to talk about community, how people working together through collective institutions can address collective problems. Now, there's a myth that the early settlers of Alberta and other prairie provinces were rugged individualists who conquered the frontier, one fence post at a time, one farmstead at a time, one small business at a time. Now, it's true that the early settlers worked hard individually and in family groups, but they rarely did it alone. They knew the value of cooperation. They knew that some challenges, some problems, were too big for one person to handle, so they banded together to find public solutions to public problems. So, for example, they needed schools, so they created school boards. They needed water for their farms, so they created irrigation cooperatives. They needed to get their agricultural products to market and didn't want to be gouged by railroads and big corporations, so they created wheat pools and marketing boards. Now, the same kind of thinking about public solutions for public challenges helped bring electrical power to rural Alberta. In fact, in my old community, I remember people telling me about uh, early in the 60s when electrification came to the neighborhood. So there, there were people who were still relatively young when I was growing up who could remember a time before electricity. <laughs> and uh, I'm dating myself. And, uh, and the same was true for telephone service. Electricity and telephone service to rural areas. But it's important to say that those things didn't come with, with private enterprise. It was public enterprise that brought those services uh, to, to these uh, far-flung communities. 
And even more recently, it was the willingness to consider public solutions to public problems that allowed people like Peter Lougheed to create a multi-billion dollar petrochemical industry in Alberta where none had existed before. Under the SoCreds, we had a system in which vast amounts, the lion's share of our natural gas was being shipped out of the province in its rawest form. Peter Lougheed said, you know what, I think some of that should stay here should be the valuable uh, byproducts should be stripped off and made available for things like petrochemical plants. So he used regulation and even public ownership to create an industry that had previously not existed. What previous generations of Albertans knew and accepted was that some problems uh, were, bi- were too big and some issues too important to be left to chance or to the vagaries of the free market. So they banded together, they took action collectively, and significantly, they looked at government not as some other or stranger uh, that couldn't be trusted, but rather as a tool that could be used to level the playing field, create opportunities, channel collective resources, reach community goals, and promote the broader public good. You know, today there are many who would say that Alberta and Albertans have changed. That we've turned a page on that kind of collective past. That there are no longer any big problems that need collective solutions. That Albertans no longer support or value collective action. That we no longer believe that governments can be instruments for promoting the public good. Well, as I've mentioned, I was raised in rural Alberta. I've grown up and lived in this province, and I say hogwash. Alberta hasn't changed that much. Is it true that we no longer have big problems that require collective action and collective solutions? What about the environmental implications of development in the oil sands? What about the loss of jobs down the pipeline? So back in the 70s, Peter Lougheed wanted to stop the export of natural gas-related value-added jobs, but we're seeing the same thing with the oil sands right now as our government turns a blind eye on the export of raw bitumen. Thousands of jobs being created in refineries in places like the American Midwest and the American Gulf Coast, jobs that could be created here, but the government does nothing. What about the fact that only about 25% of working Albertans have the literacy and numeracy skills to fill the increasingly technical jobs of the 21st century? That's a collective problem. What about our aging population and the need for better health care and long-term care? What about our rapidly growing population in communities like Lethbridge and Calgary and Edmonton and Red Deer and Fort McMurray? Populations that are desperate for new schools and better infrastructure to accommodate growth. What about the looming crisis in retirement income with declining pension coverage Some experts are predicting that as many as two-thirds of seniors will be living in poverty by 2050. The truth is that there is no shortage of issues that are crying out for public solution. And despite the stereotypes about Albertans, there's actually no shortage of support for public sector institutions and the public sector workers who have given the mandate and the opportunity to help us start addressing some of these 21st century problems. We've seen this public support for public solutions over and over again, even in a conservative province like Alberta. We've seen it in the debate over health care. 
So when presented, for example, with schemes that would open the door to private delivery and American-style queue-jumping and private insurance, Albertans have repeatedly said no. They said no to Bill 37. They said no to Bill 11. They said no to Ralph Klein's so-called third way. And most recently, they told the new Minister of Health's so-called Advisory Committee on Health Care that they wanted to fix Medicare not by privatizing it, but instead by making reforms within the public system. So just as significantly, in poll after poll, Albertans have made it clear that they would even be willing to pay more in taxes if that money could be used to keep our public health care system whole. Now, the image of Albertans as knee-jerk, free marketers who you know, sort of believe in a dog-eat-dog world and let their neighbors take care of themselves, that image took another blow just this month when a union, one of the unions that we represent, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, released a poll with some very surprising results. It was a poll of Albertans' attitudes about government, public services, and public solutions to collective problems. Just what we've been talking about. And the results told a story that would surprise many people. What it showed was that nearly 40% of Albertans said the provincial and local governments should increase spending on public services. This is a poll that was taken last month during the recession when all other governments around the world are talking about austerity measures. Here in Alberta, Albertans, regardless of their political stripe, think that we should be spending more on the services that hold our communities together and lay the groundwork for prosperity. 30, so 40% said they would increase public spending on public services. 30% said spending should be maintained at about the same level. Only 10% said that public services should be cut. 10%. And this was true across uh, political, political boundaries. Now, of course... Having issues that are well-suited for public solutions, and we have no shortage of those, right? whether it's environment, education, health care, the future of the oil sands, these are all issues that are well-suited to public solutions. So ha having those public solutions, having those issues suited to public solutions, and having public support for taking action through the public on those public solutions, that's not enough. We still have to be able to pay for them. Right? We still have to pay for these public solutions. But there's good news on that front, too. Because unlike other jurisdictions around the world and across the country who are facing hard times, here in Alberta, we continue to have the resources to deal with the problems that we're facing as we move further into the 21st century. We have resources that other jurisdictions literally salivate over. So, for example, despite the recession, we remain the only jurisdiction in all of North America without any public debt. Even our deficits, which the government has been talking about repeatedly over the uh, last couple of months, even our deficits are not really deficits. So, you may have seen these headlines, right? The government says, oh, the cupboard is bare. We have a $4.9 billion deficit. Well, it's not really a deficit for two reasons. First, 
because the money is actually coming from a rainy day fund, which the government calls a sustainability fund, that was set aside exactly for this purpose. It's raining, so they're reaching into the fund to take money out to sustain our public services, which is exactly the intent of the program. So, but they call it a deficit, even though it's money that we've saved for this purpose. Real deficits in most other jurisdictions lead to debt. This is not leading to debt. We're spending what we've saved. So it's not really a deficit. The other thing is that these deficits are the amazing disappearing deficits. They had a similar deficit for the, the, the real recession year, last year, 2009. And at the beginning of that year, they said that deficit was going to be almost $5 billion. Well, they came out with their numbers in June for the end of the year. And you know what? That $5 billion deficit actually turned out to be less than a billion dollars. Okay, so we only took $1 billion out of this huge multi-billion dollar sustainability fund. Okay, so the real deficit was much smaller than they, they say. Okay, so in addition to having no debt and having money saved to sustain our services, we have potential for revenue generation that almost... Uh, that almost any other jurisdiction would be, would, would, would be salivating to have. So over the past 20 years, for example, our, our provincial economy has grown by 70%. Corporate profits have increased by four times, four times over the last 20 years, even though their tax rates have gone down. So we, got, we have the situation of unprecedented private wealth, while at the same time we have a government that's pleading poverty. There's a disconnect. So we have, a, we, have the, we have potential to generate all the revenue that we need to fund our services and meet the challenges of the 21st century, but we're not doing it. So the bottom line is that more than any other jurisdiction in North America and perhaps the world, Alberta has the tools to face and master the problems it faces. We know what the problems are. We have a population that supports public solutions, and we have the resources to afford those solutions. But still, we don't act. We know, for example, that we need more money for education as our population grows and new neighborhoods are built, and yet we close schools. We know that our universities and colleges are the keys to our future prosperity, and yet we slash funding and lay off teachers. We know that the oil sands need better planning and more aggressive oversight to keep jobs here and to protect the environment, and yet we remain on the sidelines allowing the industry to call all the shots. And we know that the public, se that public sector solutions are the best way forward in health care, in long-term care, in pharma care, and yet we allow creeping privatization to weaken the foundations of our system. The big question is why. Why, given all the resources that we have, and why, given the values that Albertans have and their willingness to support public solutions, why is it that we're not doing all we can to take action on these issues? The answer, from my perspective, can be summed up in one word. And that one word is politics. Over the past 20 years, politics in much of the Western world has become dominated by a particularly virulent form of conservatism 
that demonizes the public sector, that rejects collective and community solutions, and puts the free market up on a pedestal. Under Ralph Klein and continuing today with people like Ted Morton, our provincial finance minister, and Daniel Smith, leader of the New Wild Rose Alliance Party, politicians in Alberta have embraced what I would describe as a dangerous mythology, one that sees uh, a vastly diminished role for government uh, in protecting and promoting our public interest. Now, there are three big problems that I see with this kind of politics and this kind of worldview. The first, perhaps, is the most obvious. The problem with this worldview is that it's wrong. It's simplistic and it's wrong. To say that government is always less efficient than the private sector, to say that taxes are always bad, to say that uh, you know, the public sector workers are always less efficient than private sector workers. It's simply not borne out by reality or experience. And Canadians know this, and Albertans know this. In our heart of hearts, and it's one of the reasons that we rally around public services like Medicare and why we continue to support our public education system. Because we know a couple of things. We know that we couldn't afford those services as individuals if we had to pay for them individually. We also know that if the profit motive was introduced to things like healthcare and education for our kids, uh, bad things would happen. So it's wrong. That, that worldview is simply wrong. That's the first big problem with that, uh, with that worldview. The second is that it doesn't, doesn't mesh with the way that Albertans actually think or the values that we hold. Albertans are not much different than other people. We have a reputation for being different, but I don't believe it. Because people, wherever they are, they're social animals. We live in society. We live in communities. We understand and value cooperation. We understand the, the, the benefits that come from working together. And you know what? It's not just self-interest that drives us to work together. We actually become better people by working together. We thrive on cooperation. So for all those who say that uh, the individual is king, and then I, I'm reminded of that famous quote from uh, the, the paragon of the conservative movement, Margaret Thatcher, who said that society doesn't exist. It's not true. It's simply not true. Now, the third problem with this worldview, and the one which is causing problems for us now in Alberta, particularly, is that those who believe in this narrow, simplistic, conservative worldview impose a constraint on debate, which has real-world implications for our ability to deal with the challenges that we face. So, for example, we've got challenges on the environmental front. We've got challenges on the economic front. We've got challenges in education and healthcare and on the social front. And when governments sit down to deal with those problems, they should have a wide range of options to consider. But because our politics has become so dominated by this narrow conservative worldview, many of those options which previous generations of governments, even here in Alberta, might have considered have simply been taken off the table. In particular, public solutions to public problems have been taken off the table as a solution. 
I mentioned the example of Peter Lougheed in the 70s. His problem was that we were exporting jobs. And his solution was government intervention through regulation and through public sector ownership. It's a solution that addressed the problem, that meshed with Alberta values, that was completely in line with the direction that governments in this province have been taking for years, but it's a solution that wouldn't even be considered today. And in fact, it's a perfect example because we have an, uh, almost an exactly analogous so situation between the export of unrefined natural gas in the 60s and 70s and the export of unrefined bitumen in Alberta today. Back then, because this narrow cone of acceptable solutions hadn't been dropped on our political debate, Peter Lougheed and his cabinet were able to say, you know what? This is one of those examples where the free market's not working for us. We've got to step in. Same situation today. Because the debate has been so constrained, our government can't even consider those kind of solutions. So, the result is we have the specter of the probably and potentially wealthiest government in the world saying that the cupboard is bare, saying that we can't afford good schools, that we can't afford accessible universities, that we can't afford to protect our environment. So in healthcare, the solutions that we get are from this narrow range of options, the menu, this, this constrained menu, right? So in healthcare, the solutions are not progressive solutions like pharmacare or uh, you know, more long-term care facilities. They're private sector solutions like privatization and increased user fees in education. Uh, you know, we've got people saying, well, this, this is the best we can do. If you don't like it, go to a send your kids to a private school. And in environment, this is the one that uh, has been getting a lot of the attention. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys were uh, reading the papers about the visit of, of uh, James Cameron uh, to the oil sands. Uh, but because of this narrow, uh, this increasingly narrow range of options that our government will consider, we get a policy when it comes to environmental protection and the oil sands, which is essentially, essentially boils down to trust the industry. Okay? Even when it comes to such core things that you think would definitely fall within the public sphere, like water monitoring, right? Like who should do that job? In any other jurisdiction in this, in this world, who do you think should do the job of water monitoring to see if the oil sands are actually contaminating our rivers and, and our groundwater? Well, you'd think it would be public sector workers, who are most accountable for the public, to the public, right? But it's not. It's, it's industries themselves. Our government has basically said you can't trust the public to regulate in the public interest, so we're going to give it to industry. And that's, that's a direct result of this conservative worldview that has uh, taken public sector options off the table. And it's also, as I said, the same, uh, the same problem that's uh, rendering our provincial government basically um, unable to move in, in the face of the export of oil sands jobs. So what is the solution? What is the solution uh, that we need to look at in order to uh, allow Alberta to ad address these collective problems uh, that we're facing as we move further into the 21st century. Uh, 
I would argue that the only solution, the one that is frankly long overdue in this province, is a revolution in political thinking. And when I say revolution in political thinking, I'm not just talking about marking your X next to a different party at the next provincial election. Because on that front, in some ways, we act, we're going to have more options uh, the next time we go to the ballot box than we've had in many years. But I would argue that even though... Uh, the Wild Rose Alliance, which is the new party that's emerged on the political landscape, even though they have a new leader uh, and, uh, and, and a different platform, they're really not different in any measurable way from the gang that's been running this province since the election of Ralph Klein in 1993. Okay? And they're not different because they embrace that same narrow conservative worldview which basically limits the number of options that can be considered for dealing with these big, these big problems. So when I say that we need a revolution in political thinking, I say that we have to start expanding the range of possible. Right? And in many ways, we have to go back to the future, which is the title of my presentation. We have to go back to that kind of pioneer thinking, which characterized Alberta from the beginning, which took a very pragmatic solution, a, a, a pragmatic approach to problems, political problem solving. We need to go back to uh, recognizing that collective solutions are sometimes the only way to deal with collective problems. We need to put more options back on the table. So what would that look like? What would a expanded political spectrum in Alberta look like? It would put more options on the table. The first thing that we would need to talk about doing with a new, newly expanded political uh, menu in Alberta would be to talk about revenue. Because partly as a result of this narrow political worldview that has dominated Alberta for so long, we've actually impoverished our own government and our own communities, which is perverse because we've impoverished them at exactly the same time that our ability uh, to pay for quality services has expanded. Um, and there are all, there's, there's endless examples of this. We've, there was the famous penny-on-the-dollar royalty system that the Klein government introduced for the oil sands. There was the flat tax that was introduced by uh, his secretary, his his, tre his uh, treasurer Stockwell Day, and uh, over time, basically, the only solution that narrow range of solutions that was offered by this government they they only they, they only had a couple of solutions that were, they considered to any pro policy problem: cut taxes and deregulate. So every year it was another tax that was cut. It was another uh, regulation that was thrown aside, and the result has been. And that was papered over for a number of years, especially during the, the, that uh, five or six year long run of boom right before the economy went bust in October of 2008. The fact that we were uh, not taking in enough revenue to sustain even basic, our, our, our basic level of public services was hidden by uh, the revenue generated by that boom. Now that the, the oil prices have dropped a little bit, we're starting to see 
what price we're paying for introducing the flat tax and cutting corporate tax. So we, we need to start having what we describe at our federation as an adult conversation. Two minutes? I've got to wrap up. I could go on forever. Uh, <laughs> uh, what we describe as an adult conversation about paying for the services that uh, we need in our communities and for our families and for our kids. So do we, do, do we want high-quality K-12 education? Do we want high-quality and accessible university and college education? Do we want uh, publicly provided, publicly delivered, uh, high-quality high Medicare? If we want all those things, the good news is we can have them, but the bad news is we can't have them with the revenue system that we have right now because it's been deliberately impoverished and it doesn't provide the revenue stream uh, to, to, to support these programs. So that's the, that's the first conversation uh, that we have to have. And I'll, I think I'm just going to wrap it up there because I know I'm running out of time. But, you know, there will, there, let me just wrap up by saying this. There, you know, there are those who say that uh, the recession has put constraints on this economy there are those who say that our hands are tied. There are those who say that our cupboard is bare. And uh, as a result, we have to accept the same kind of austerity and rollbacks that are being contemplated and even implemented in places like the United Kingdom, um, in other countries in Europe, in places like Japan. But what I say and I think what most Albertans know in their heart of hearts, especially when they look around and they see all this wealth, those, those tough choices may have to be made in, in, in some of those communities that don't have the options that we do. But here in Alberta, where the economy is still strong, where our companies are still raking in unprecedented profits, where we're sitting on top of some of the most valuable resources in the world, we have the resources to think big. We don't have to accept less. We can afford to do better by our seniors, by our students, by our families. Don't let anyone, whether it's Ted Morton from the Conservatives or Danielle Smith from, uh, from, from the Wild Rose Alliance, tell you, as Albertans who own these vast resources, that we can't do better for our communities. And don't tell them that it's, don't, don't let them tell you that it's not the Alberta way to find collective solutions to collective problems. Because looking back, those, that approach is really what helped Alberta get through the tough times that we've had before. And it's that approach that will help us deal with the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. So, uh, you know, and, and, and let me just wrap up with, with a little. I keep doing this, but uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, I grew up in Alberta, and I know sometimes it's hard to raise your voice in this province. Sometimes it's awkward to raise questions because there's kind of this groupthink that goes on, especially at the political level. It's not polite to talk politics, and especially not polite to talk politics that's not in line with the, uh, the government of the day, okay? But uh, <laughs> there, there is a couple of uh, recent uh, studies that I saw done by uh, academics, which I thought were interesting. The first had to do with creative solutions to problems. There was a study done by a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, I think, 
who demonstrated conclusively that more creative solutions came out of groups where there were dissenting voices. And this, this, this sounds obvious, right? So if you're a dissenter, feel proud that by being a dissenter, you're actually helping your community and your province and your government come to better solutions. So don't let anyone ever shut you up. The other thing, another study, <laughs> is that uh, it was about a study of uh, people who are active on issues and vocal versus those who were, you know, they kind of stayed to themselves and were homebodies. You know what? The people who were active, who, people who got involved in campaigns and weren't afraid to get on a picket line or weren't afraid to, you know, call their MLA, they, they lived longer. And they were happier. So, so I'm just going to wrap up, wrap up on that. We need a revolution in this province. Not a, not a physical revolution, but a revolution of ideas and a revolution uh, of politics. And if you engage, if you, enjoyed, uh, if you join me and others in, in engaging in that revolution, you'll help us come up with better outcomes, and you'll live longer too. So, so thanks very much for this opportunity, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have.